Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are in our final week in our series in Deuteronomy. And today's conversation is called Yada, Yada, Yada. The question for you to get started with is, what's one thing you can do that would make your life better in the next three months? Enjoy. Abby, we believe that our mission is telling the biggest story of God possible in Los Angeles in 2019, meaning that's really contextual to who we are as a community, but that thing is ever-changing because we believe that the story of God is ever-changing. We shouldn't be telling a great story of God from 1951. The world looks a little bit different than 1951. And what we want to do today is we end in the book of Deuteronomy and everyone's side. Numbers is coming next, so prepare yourself. <laughs> Is he joking or isn't he? <laughs> Time will tell. Is that the idea of Deuteronomy is that we want to talk about maturity, that it's an entire book about reconstruction. What do you do now after you've been saved from your oppression in Egypt? What do you do after you're living out the ambiguity of deconstruction in the wilderness? And how do you begin to rebuild some things? That's why we were in the book of Deuteronomy. But I do not believe that church or the way of Jesus or the way of our lives is just theory or ideology. I think that it's practice. And so today what we want to talk about is how do we live out the biggest story of God in Los Angeles in 2019. And we'll be able to do that as we look at the final chapter of Deuteronomy that really gets into kind of Moses' eulogy. How is this great figure of the Bible looking back on the rest of life and what do they have to say about him? So to do that, we've got to talk about some things. We've got to talk about blackjack because I'm either the worst or the best pastor there ever was because I go gambling. Uh, we're going to talk about archetypes and prototypes of boxes. And if we can understand what those archetypes do, then we're going to think about how we move from the big one to the small all. More to come on that. Then that time I jumped off the cliff, and that's kind of how we got here. Then if we can do that, then we're going to talk about the perspective of the perceptions that you have. And if we can talk about the perspectives of the perceptions that you have, then we'll talk about yada, yada, yada. And if we can talk about yada, 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 we'll talk about the fruit in our life. And then all of the lessons I learned yesterday from my son's sixth birthday party. <laughs> what a time to be alive. Uh, a few months back, my buddy was having a bachelor party. And I wasn't originally going to be able to go. And then last minute, uh, he's just a great friend of mine. I was able to get a plane ticket, and I was going to go surprise him for 12 hours. So I, I fly out. Like, I got my suit on. I'm, like, ready to get, like, the troops fired up, right? So we get there, and we decide to go to a casino. Uh, and we're going to do still, you know, a little bit of gambling. Gambling for me is it's just like entertainment. Like, if you want to go to a sporting event or get some margaritas or do Soul Cycle, that's kind of how it is for me, right? You come in there with, like, 200 bucks. If I lose it, so be it. If I win something, what a dream world. Great. I'm having fun with a bunch of buddies. Don't judge me. Some of you are. Great. <laughs> so I go in there with my normal couple hundred dollars, and it's just one of those days, like, I could not lose a hand, right? Everything was just going my way. And next thing I know, I'm, like, up, like, 700 bucks. I'm like, this is awesome, right? And I'm at some, like, $10 table. So, like, I have some cash in me. They're, like, giving me a couple free Coronas. What a dream. Um, and I look, keep looking over at the groom, and, and he's like, oh, maybe like another hour. I'm like, well, whatever. So he said another hour. I'm like, oh, I thought we were going to leave sooner. So I just started betting bigger, because I was like, whatever, it's not my money. I don't even care at this point. And so next thing I look, I'm up like 1,200 bucks. So I'm fired up at this point, right? And now I look over at the groom, and he's like, hey, I think I'm ready to go. Last hand. Perfect. So I put a hand in. 
I put in 90 bucks, I win the hand, and then he says that, and so now I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna press blackjack terminology, and I got 180 bucks out there, I'm like, what a win. Hand comes out, in the blackjack world, statistically, it was a very favorable hand for me. All right, and I'm not gonna get into all of it because that's just gonna bore you with numbers. I'm the last person at the table, I'm the last bet, I see what the dealer has, and the hand that I get, I'm allowed to split my hand, but to do that, I have to bet the equal bet that I already have out there. So I put another $180 out there. Now what happens is the next card comes out, it allows me to split it again. I put another $180 out there. The next bet comes, I'm allowed to press it, which is black term, blackjack terminology, I have another $180 out there. Then the final hand comes and it's able to split it again. This is like 1% of 1% of statistics that are going on here, people, in blackjack. So now I have $900 on the table and I'm just laughing at this point. You know, I'm like, oh, this is hilarious. And statistically, what the dealer has, I am supposed to win this hand nine out of 10 times. So the dealer starts turning over cards and keeps turning over all these really low cards. Now the dealer's showing five cards, which if you know anything about blackjack, is statistically another 1% of 1% chance. So my hand is highly improbable, the dealer's hand is highly improbable, now my odds of winning are like 99 and 100, all right? And I just thought, great, I'm gonna win the money, I'm gonna literally hand $1,000 to the groom, say you guys go have a steak dinner, because I have to get on an airplane and leave, have a wonderful bachelor party. Now like the whole casino is gathered around at this point, <laughs> right? Because they're like, what is happening here? I'm not exactly the quietest guy in a room, so I'm like, oh my gosh, like with every hand, right? People are stopping, watching, it's wild. I'm like so fired up, I'm like, I'm in a suit, right? No one else is in a suit here, because that's what I came on the airplane with. And then the final car gets turned, there was 16 showing in blackjack, a five is 21 and I would lose. And of course it was a five. And I lost $900. And I just stand up, I tell the dealer, thank you so much for an enjoyable night. And I Richard Nixoned it and I peace and I was out of there. And I had the best time. And partly sometimes for me, it was just all about the perspective of the moment. One, honestly, it, it, was, it was gambling. Like I don't go into a casino trying to win money. I'm there to like have some friends, fun with buddies. Like when you're trying to think you're gonna win money, that's when you get into a little bit of trouble, right? And for me, it was just, hey, it's this moment to enjoy life. I get to be here with my buddy if we win. What a win for everybody. If I lose, I still left with the same $200 that I came in with, and I have an amazing story to share. And that's the exciting thing for me. And sometimes what, what I believe about life is that life sometimes feels like that table. There's these highs and their lows, but to be honest, you just get one chance at life. And I think so many of us in this room are in such a process of deconstruction that we forget the fact you only get one chance at this life. We're so busy critiquing. We're so busy being cynical. We have so much oppression going on, so many things in our lives. And, and by the way, let me pause for a second. And it's all valid. There's real hurt. There's real pain. There's real wounds that need to be addressed. This is not... Just go gamble it all away and distract yourself from those problems. This is still address those things. And can you enjoy life? Not either or. And can you just give it all, your all in each moment that you can soak it up in the midst of all of the pain, in the midst of all of the hurt, in the midst of all of the figuring it out? And I think when I look at the life of Moses as we end the book of Deuteronomy, that's what I see. It's not a life of perfection. Forgive us 
as the church, as pastors and priests who have endlessly told you a story of perfection. And that is not helpful because you will never live a life of perfection. And that is never what you have been called to. You've been called to an imperfect process of figuring it out. And that's what the life of Moses shows us. That's what the life of all of the characters of the Bible tell us. And we've done a bad job of telling that story. We've done a bad job of inviting people into a more beautiful Bible, a more beautiful narrative, a more beautiful faith that actually works for the human experience. Follow along with me as we read Deuteronomy chapter 34. Then Moses went up to Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab and climbed Pagash Peak, or Pisgah, whatever it's called, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead as far as Dan, all the land of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah extending to the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, the Jordan Valley with Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to Moses, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have not allowed you to see it with your own eyes, but you, I have now allowed you to see it with your own eyes, but you will not enter the land. By the way, that's a tough pill to swallow. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, just as the Lord had said. And the Lord buried him in a valley near Beth Peor in Moab, but to this day no one knows the exact place. And Moses was 120 years old when he died. Yet his eyesight was clear, and he was strong as ever. And the people of Israel mourned for Moses as the plains of Moab for 30 days, until the customary period of mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses has laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him, doing just as the Lord had commanded Moses. There has never been another prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. The Lord sent him to perform all the miracle signs and wonders in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and his entire land. With mighty power, Moses performed terrifying acts in the sight of all of Israel. We often talk about the boxes in here of construction and deconstruction and reconstruction, right? Which are just helpful frameworks for us to understand how do we actually live as human beings. The life of Moses is particularly helpful because Moses' life is literally kind of cleanly set up in some of these boxes. When it says that Moses died at 120 years old, there are these three segments of 40 years in Moses' life. The first segment of Moses' life is all about construction. It's all the season of life that Moses didn't pick any of it. This is just what he was given. That's true of all of us in this room. There's just so much of life that you were given in the first box and it's not good, it's not bad, it's not indifferent. It is your story. And now you have to go make something of your story. For Moses, he was born into genocide, didn't know his dad. His mom had to put him on a river filled with crocodiles, right? He grew up in a home that wasn't his own, of a different race and ethnicity. He was somebody who was making sense of himself in a palace, even though that's not where he came from, where his people were dealing with oppression, but he was dealing with privilege. This feels like a lot of human existence, right? That Moses was trying to understand who he was in the box of construction that he was given. At 40 years old is when Moses kills an Egyptian guard and flees into the desert. Now this is the period of Moses' next 40 years. This is his wilderness before the wilderness. Moses was in the desert after leaving and running away from Pharaoh's household for 40 years. Why does the Bible give you that? Again, take it seriously, not literally. If you're like the person out there like, well, you see what the 40 years, and if we compare that with the blood moons, then the rapture is gonna happen. No, that's weird, and don't listen to anyone who talks like that. 
It's not helpful. It's really not. And by the way, and just statistics are on my side, every single one of them has been wrong. So just try that on for size, right? That's not how you understand the Bible. How you understand the Bible is this is metaphor and myth to give you truth about your life. Moses went through a period of wilderness by himself, figuring it out. How do I make sense of what I have been given? How do I make sense of who I am? And now I want to be somebody different. How many of you have gone through that process or are in that process? That should be all of your hands, by the way, right? You were given something. Now here's your period of life where you're figuring out your identity, who you are as a human being, what you understand about God, your sexuality, your race, your economics, who you love, the kind of job that you want to figure out. That's just so much of the work of being human and really the first half of life. And you do that honestly through a lot of pain, figuring it out and not getting it right most of the time. A little bit of grace to yourselves, right? That's Moses' story. Moses comes back into Egypt called by God at 80 years old. And all of the great stories that we see in the book of Exodus are because Moses was 80 years old and he had endured something during his deconstruction that during the next 40 years, he was equipped to take the people of Israel through it now. Does that make sense? He wasn't gonna just like go from being 40 and then take the people into the wilderness by himself. He had to go do his own experience so that he would be properly equipped to take other people with him. Sometimes we're so quick to offer people maturity when we don't have our own stuff figured out, right? And that's generally a sign that we're still in the deconstruction process. When we don't know to say, I don't know. I don't have this figured out. I'm just as much of a loss that you are. But hey, man, let's go blind together because that's more fun than being blind alone, right? <laughs> and so now Moses is in the reconstruction period and that's really how you go through the wilderness. And now we're at 120 years old at the end of Moses' life. And what the story is trying to say is, this is all of our stories. That so often what we've been presented about the Bible is stories of prototypes. A prototype is something that like, it, it's one of a kind, it's kind of revolutionary, and we all want to be like the prototype. We talk about Moses that way or Jesus that way. That's not helpful for you. It's better to think about it like an archetype. It's trying to say, this thing is kind of the human thing. That's why Jesus's life is there's a very short period of construction, deconstruction that you're given. And most all of you see of Jesus's life is Jesus starts his ministry at 30. You only see the reconstruction. Because the story of Jesus's life is, let us show you the third way. Jesus isn't burning things down as much as other parts of the Bible. Jesus is almost only rebuilding things. He's doing that by crossing boundaries. He's doing that by doing all of the healthy stuff of bringing healing and transformation. But Jesus is doing it from a posture of reconstruction and health and maturity. And that's why Jesus is the ultimate archetype, right? That's why we are a Jesus community. It's why you call yourself a Christian. That's how the narrative of the scriptures work out. It's not just this flat, linear piece of information. It's moving and it's evolving and it's growing and it's stretching and it's sweaty and it's bloody and it's gross and it's beautiful because that's your life. That's the story that you've been given. And so now Moses is at the end. He's gone through all of the things that we will most likely go through as human beings. And it says he's 120 years old. And it says things like his eyesight was still good, right? Like he could still see some things going on. And one of the things about that is that what it's trying to say, it, it, the Bible will talk about eyesight a lot. And again, not literal, take it seriously. What it's trying to say is this is how you see the world. This is your perspective of things. 
It was saying he had a healthy perspective even at the end of his life. He had lived so well. He had done all of the work that he was supposed to do. By the way, he's not getting invited into the promised land. He went through all of that and he has to swallow the pill that he doesn't get to go into the promised land and his still healthy eyesight still has a great perspective of things and still has great perception. That's what we all wish for for our life. You're gonna get to a point where you can't just be angry anymore. Where you can't just burn all of the systems down anymore. Where you're gonna look back and you're gonna make meaning of whatever it is that you have done. Will you have radically changed every wrong in the world? No. Will you have made an incredible effort of moving the world forward and evolving it towards healing, transformation, and maturity? Of course you will. And that's your job as a human being. Your job is to pass on to the next generation a little something better than the world that you came in with. Will it be perfect? No, because perfection is not the goal. It will be about what kind of perspective do you take and how do you perceive the world once you get there? Because when you're a little bit older and a little bit more mature, now you get a passed on that evolved thinking and way of being to the next generation. And isn't that a gift? So that they can jump light years ahead to do the work that they need to do in their generation. This is why the Bible speaks in these giant narratives of generations and lifestyle and where we're going. Now, we all have a narrative of where we come from in some way, and we need to use our narrative to propel us into the next chapter of our lives to make the world a better place. There was a season of my life where I was being groomed to take over like an up-and-coming, growing, kind of wannabe megachurch sort of thing, right? And they had given me an opportunity to start speaking there when I was 22 years old, and I had no business of being a preaching pastor at that age, by the way. Um, and I'm doing all the things that you're supposed to do, right? I'm speaking at five services, and we're about to launch another campus, and that's no big deal, right? And that's what I was told. That's success, right? And it's success because I fit the mold. I'm a tall, white, charismatic, white man. And that fits the bill for a lot of things. And I remember journeying around, visiting all of these other megachurches in Dallas and Seattle and Chicago and asking them about like what was next, right? As we were preparing to grow as a church. And I remember in that moment thinking, this is the trajectory of where we're going. These are the types of questions that we're asking. What the lighting's like and how does the stage switch out between the band and the pastor, Ugh! right? <laughs> like it was awful. Because there was something in me that said, no, the narrative that I want to leave for the next generation is telling a bigger story of God. I see the Bible completely different. I don't see the Bible as a means to say it well and charismatically so that we can get more ass and seats on a Sunday. That's not interesting to me. I see the Bible as a means to continue to change and transform and heal the life of the world. And that the people of God has a place, that it's about the body of Christ doing work. It's not about pastors learning to speak better. And I didn't know what any of that meant, right? And then things were going well for me. I get to meet Rob Bell and he becomes my mentor. And I'm like, man, all of the things I'm supposed to be doing, I'm doing, come on. And then there was the moment of that's not living. I'm just living into somebody else's box that they told me that this is success. But I want a world I wanna be a part of a world where we talk honestly about the challenges of what it means to be human. I wanna live in a world where we honestly communicate an inclusive God, 
Because when we communicate an inclusive God, it will make the life better of people who are in the LGBTQ community, people of color, women, white men, everybody. Because when you heal, I heal. When I heal, you heal. And then that participates in the healing of the world. That's what I wanted to be a part of. And so I jump off that cliff and I leave that thing and I start New Abbey. And it was awful. <laughs> so, so awful. And I remember 10 people sitting in the living room and I was depressed because I had measured myself by another form of success. And I had to work through on my own, some of my own deconstruction and my own depression and my own insecurities and my own anxieties and my own egos if I were to ever lead anyone else there. And it sucked. And I think that the, the power of it is, is that sometimes you've got to leave some things behind even when it's not all tied up, right? Even when it's not perfect. Brian's story. I'm sure you could have been hidden and kept working the system at InterVarsity and gotten somewhere, but would have never been the life that you were destined for. And I'm not getting like prosperity gospel when I say that. I'm saying, you, this is your life. Right now, this is your life. You are not going to get another one. Deconstruct it all. Ask all of the questions. Think about a more inclusive God, but you're not gonna get another life. So if you wanna do something, you should go do it. Take your pain, take your wounds, take the systems, take all of the hurt, take all of the stuff that you've been given and go turn it into something beautiful. I believe that. Go turn it into a beautiful Bible, right? Go turn it into something like the Christian closet where there are not other LGBTQ right, therapists out there who have children who are married. You're leading the way by setting an example. Go leave your mega church like Brittany Barron, right? And get married to your wife. Don't stay hidden in the closet because you're never going to live your life again. Is it going to come at a cost? Fuck yes. <laughs> it's going to cost you everything. But it's going to be so worth it. It's going to be so incredibly worth it. And that's the story that we're given here. And we're given that story because human beings, we want more in the best way. There's this phrase in the Hebrew Bible when it says that Moses knew God. The phrase is yada, 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 yada. And yada means no barriers, nothing in between. You can touch it, you can taste it, you can smell it. It's right there, it's palpable, it's as close as anything else. I think that it's interesting that you're all sitting here on a Sunday morning. I say that all of the time. And as much as people are deconstructing in this room, I believe that most people in this room are here because you want to know God in a different way. You didn't just leave the church because it hurt you or didn't have a place for you, it wasn't telling a big enough story, and then never come back. You came back. You're sitting here because there's something about God that still calls out to you as a human being. The future of humanity is not agnosticism or atheism. 99.9% .9 of humanity has always been theists and will continue to be theists, by the way. The evolution of humanity is not like, we've learned another thing about science and we don't need God anymore. No, what we're even finding out about neuroscience is there's places in our brains that only click on when we pray. Isn't that crazy, right? There's things behind the things behind the things that we're figuring out as human beings and we want to know and taste and touch God because we want to be a part of transforming the world. So take whatever that thing is even if it's just a small little glimmer of hope, if it's just a little match in you, and ignite that thing. Ignite that thing in a room like this because you heard a story like Brian Chung's and you said, man, look what he went through. I'm gonna go do my thing now too. 
And I think that's the goal that I have for this community, that we would all be participating in the biggest story of God possible. And the only way that happens is when you participate in the biggest story of God in your life in Los Angeles in 2019. You're not gonna eat the whole elephant today, so do it one bite at a time. Take one little bite out that says, this is the story that I want to live. And I believe that's true of Moses. He got to the end of his life and it wasn't perfect is what it's telling you. He doesn't get to walk into the promised land, but he lived a life that transformed the lives of hundreds, thousands, millions, whatever you want to call it, others. And that can be all of our lives as well. My son had a sixth grade birthday party yesterday. Thank you for correcting me. <laughs> a six-year-old birthday party. And uh, kind of the story of my life, I was joking with Sammy about this earlier, is uh, I'm like an inclusive kind of person, so I'm like, oh, we gotta invite this person, we gotta invite this person. And even now I'm feeling guilty because there's some of you I should have invited and didn't invite and didn't know it, and it's awful, right? So there's all these beautiful people there, and uh, I'd only be crazy enough to throw a pool party with like 50 kids because like I'm bold and crazy like that, right? And I'm like, please let nobody drown. We don't have enough insurance for this. Um, and it was a beautiful day. And I had a couple moments in the day where I saw Caden like getting ready to jump off a diving board. He's not fully confident yet at swimming, but he wanted to be, I could tell in that moment. And he wanted to jump off, and you keep, I could kind of look at him looking around the room. There's like 90 other people. They're not paying attention to him. They're all doing their own thing, right? And he like jumps in, and he quickly gets to the wall as quick as he can. But I knew in that moment, he was like trying to be like, yeah, it's my pool party, right? I'm gonna jump in this pool. Look at me. I'm telling the biggest story of God possible, right? <laughs> but get my ass to that wall first, because I'm gonna drown. <laughs> I don't know if dad's watching. And it was just in the, all of the chaos of life, it was so beautiful to watch him do that. And as I think back about the day, that's like one of my few moments. Because I am an Enneagram three, which means I am great at doing. I'm so good at doing. I will hustle, I will outwork, I will outmaneuver, that's what I do. But I miss out on the present moment so many times. What, However I was made in life, whatever first box I was given, because of the brokenness of my family, because of independence, because of all of the wounds, it made me somebody who was an entrepreneur because I had to survive. And sometimes because of my survival skills, I miss out on the real life that's happening in front of me. And then we get home and there's workers at the old space and things are going wrong in construction in my own home. And uh, uh, the other business that I own, some things are going wrong and not all the details were figured out at church. All of the things that I love managing and I so identify with, that look at me, look all that I have built. Meet Corey, right? <laughs> I pride myself in it. I so pride myself in it. But I got home and I don't have a single memory with my family the rest of the day because I had to go get a bunch of stuff done. And this morning I just sat in the shower and I said, that's not the story of God that I want to tell in the world. I don't want to own businesses and start churches and do whatever. I don't want to identify myself by that. What I want to identify myself with when I'm at the end of my life, hopefully surrounded by the people that I love, when I'm telling the lessons that I learned from what I've been given is that I was a present father. I want to ask myself different questions going into birthday parties. How do I make sure that I have nothing else on the calendar this day? So that leading up to the party and in the party and after the party, I just get a revel in who my child is. And I didn't do that and I regret it. I so regret it. That I have one little memory in my head and the rest of it is all hustle. Is the pizza out? Are the vegetables going? Is this happening? The music? What is wrong with the music? Right? <laughs> and what I'm saying is that, that, that might not mean anything to you, but that's my life. 
Those are the things that I'm working through. We're all working through different things. That's not all of my life. That's one component of it because that's the thing that I want to be remembered by. Through all of my construction, through all of my deconstruction, through all of my reach, through all of the big 30,000-foot things that we're trying to move in the world as followers of Jesus, I want all of that to happen. I want all of that healing to take place. I want all of that transformation to move forward. I want to be the most mature person possible so that at the end of my life, I can say I was present with my children. That's why we're doing all of it. You're not doing all of this to burn down systems. You're not burning all of this so that you can look that youth pastor in the eye one day and say, I told you so, mother. No, you're doing all of this so that one day when you're old, you're surrounded by the people that you love and that you gave them the best life possible because you were with them and you gave them life and you gave them healing, and you gave them goodness and you gave them beauty. That's why you're doing it. You find the same three or four people around you and answer this question. What's the one thing you want people to say about you at your funeral? Enjoy. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey Podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.